Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Adrian Mayer, author of the book Flying Snakes and Griffin Claws, and other classical myths, historical odysseys, and scientific curiosities. Adrian, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. We're glad to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I'm a historian of ancient science, sort of the science before science. Um, I'm looking for the sort of the first inklings of the scientific impulse. So I explore the borderlands or the crossroads of history, archaeology, anthropology, science uh, and mythology and I'm what I'm doing is looking for germs of truth uh, nuggets of reality embedded in legends and myth and popular lore um, so uh, that's basically what I do and uh, because so much of literature and art from classical antiquity and uh, just the ancient world is lost and what does survive is, is really kind of patchy. It often feels like my research landscape is kind of shrouded in, in fog or mist uh, with a lot of twisting paths. But um, sometimes I can follow footprints of previous explorers. Um, other times I'm just on my own, and that's my favorite sort of territory. Uh, it's sort of the borderlands between these realms of study and these in-between lands, uh, uh, the sort of the, the borderlands of myth, science, and history. So that's, that's basically uh, what I do. Uh, those borderlands are, are are very much on display in this book, and and it's and one of the things that fascinated me as I was reading was just how wide ranging it is. What led you to essentially feature all these nuggets in, in a single book? Well, I guess if I think about it, one of my ancient heroes uh, and actually my guide uh, might might be Herodotus. Uh, from the 5th century BC, he was just an insatiably curious Greek historian who, who traveled to, to exotic lands uh, from Greece. Uh, he went to around the Black Sea, went to Egypt, he went to what is now Turkey, uh, and he interviewed local people about their histories and their strange customs. And he, he, he pestered uh, priests and guides uh, to tell him more about all the strange things that he heard. Um, and his accounts captivated the Athenians in the fifth century BC, and I sort of use him as a as a model. He kept a very open mind, and he sometimes even uh, uh, sounds kind of skeptical about things. But this is a guy who could never let a good story go untold. So I, I'm I'm really uh, taking him as my model. I, I love the dusty corners of of literature. Um, art, history, and uh, science and history. So whenever I come across something that uh, that's not explained when I'm reading ancient, ancient uh, Greek and Latin texts, I start a file. I sort of feel like a cold case detective. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was thinking that, 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 uh, you know, I, I, that, 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 uh, method of Herodotus that you describe is on display in that, in that very first chapter where you're talking about flying snakes. And, and I thought that was such a neat way of, 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 on so many levels of showing how, uh, 
you know, ancient peoples came across these stories, how they processed them, and then how you then took what information we had, not just from Herodotus, but from other contemporary references to similar phenomenon, and used it to try to get at the truth or, or get as close to the truth as we, we probably can today. Absolutely. I, the Flying Snakes is the opening uh, chapter, and that's the title of my book. So I'm gonna I'm gonna not do a spoiler for that. But uh, one of my <laughs> one of my favorite, um, uh, well, my second the sections of this uh, of this book. Um, there are four four different sections. Uh, as you can see, there there's animals, fabulous, real, and extinct, and that's where the uh, the flying snakes falls into that section, um, and. I have another favorite essay in that section, The Little Bird with Poison Poop. Um, it's oh, just, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, I, it's just, uh, just uh, has always fascinated me that one of the poisonous creatures that was reported in, in antiquity and one of the most mysterious is the dicaron bird. It's supposed to be an inch-long bird that's sort of orange-colored and whose droppings were said to be just incredibly deadly to human beings. And this was some sort of biotoxin that was deliberately collected in the high mountains of India. Um, and this was reported by Catesius, a Greek physician who lived in Persia around the same time as Herodotus. And he's the first one to describe this poisonous bird. And then uh, uh, Roman naturalist Elian uh, also uh, described it. And it was said that this poison was um, excreted by this little tiny bird and that it could bring death in a few hours. And it was a really rare and precious thing kept in the royal pharmacies of Persia and India. So I wondered what in the world was this little bird? Um, so I I really delved into that. I um, I spent a lot of time uh, digging up as much as I could to figure out what what could account for this story? And some people have suggested uh, that maybe they're just talking about uh, beetle nuts or cannabis, uh, and then they say that it comes from a bird, but uh, cannabis of India uh, was known to Herodotus and other, other writers. It's not deadly, um, and uh, beetle nuts are also not uh, a fast-acting poison. So I I, I give a little more credence to the idea that it could have been some sort of beetle, uh, a kind of beetle that um, maybe hangs out in birds' nests. In fact, I, I learned a lot in this rabbit hole <laughs> um, that there are there are certain types of dung beetles that are found in birds' nests, and but dung beetles aren't toxic. So. Um, I, I, I dug a little further and I found out that beetles might be involved. So there are some large winged beetles that could be mistaken for small birds. They're very, very large beetles and they fly. And so they could be mistaken for for a small bird. And, and there are some really toxic beetles that could, uh, whose uh, droppings or insides could have um, been taken for uh, bird droppings. But then I... I, w I went further into the rabbit hole. <laughs> I, I found out that, the, that there are actually poisonous birds, and they were known in antiquity. I mean, Mithridates VI of Pontus, who was a famous toxicologist and Rome's big enemy during the Mithridatic Wars in the first century BC, he was an experimental toxicologist. He cultivated poison plants, and he also raised 
ducks that were poisonous to eat. So we know about poisonous birds as early as, as the first century BC. And I found out that the Old Testament talks about the Israelites uh, mass poisoning by eating quail. Uh, this is reported in Exodus when the Israelites were uh, starving as they crossed the Sinai Desert. Uh, a multitude of quail descended on their encampment and, and they ate the birds. They um, fell ill the next day. It was just a plague, severe plague decimated them. And it turns out that um, quail poisonings are are well known. There's a, um, it happens on their uh, great migration from Europe down to Africa. They eat hemlock seeds. And if you eat their flesh uh, while they're migrating, um, you'll fall ill. So now I'm really into poison birds. And it, tur <laughs> it turns out that there are, since, since I would guess since the 80s, uh, they have found about a hundred avian species from quail, grouse, geese, uh, smaller birds, all around the world that are poisonous. So um, I don't have uh, I don't have the exact uh, identification for the little dicaron bird that was uh, whose droppings were so precious uh, <laughs> for assassination and suicide in ancient India and Persia. But I, I feel like I'm getting closer to the, to the solution to that ancient mystery. And that, that nicely uh, demonstrates that how in, in this section of the book, you, you, you have a lot of, of, of uh, chapters about the exotic and the mythical. You have, you have a chapter on, on the Golden Fleece. You have a chapter on, on sea monsters and merpeople. But I have to say, one of my favorite chapters was your chapter on dogs in the ancient world, because it, it, it's just, it was so fascinating to read about the, a relationship that was both familiar and yet different, such as with the names, with the I, I, I sometimes feel bad that we that we don't feed dogs meat, but as you described, hey, that's not exactly unusual for dogs. And, and as you then go exp and I explain, you know, dogs even in nature uh, are, are not necessarily uh, pure carnivores. That's right. And I, it, um, what's fun about that particular essay is that it it draws on one of my one of the first uh, things that I ever published. Uh, what what did the ancient Greeks and Romans feed their puppies? And it was published in Sports Afield. <laughs> 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 and I, I, I never let go of that, uh, that topic, though, because, as you say, it's, it's so fascinating. The relationship between humans and dogs uh, is, you know, uh, since, uh, since time immemorial, I guess. And uh, so I, I, I found out all sorts of names for dogs and uh, how they were trained. And I think one of the most amazing is the little set of, uh, of uh, Assyrian uh, figures of dogs, and each one has its name on there, and they're just a, uh, the names of dogs are amazing. The Assyrians had rather long names. Xenophon, who wrote about uh, hunting dogs in ancient Greece, suggested that you only have one or two syllables for a dog. For when you when you're calling your dog, really, it's much easier if you have just a one syllable name. But uh, um, yeah, that that one was a lot of fun uh, to write, and uh, people really seem to love that one. <laughs> Now, uh, your next chapter, in your next section, you uh, shift away from talking about uh, you know nature, and you talk about 
some of the women of the ancient world. This was a very interesting cha- uh, section for me because, you know, as is so often the case in, in, in patriarchal societies, the, the the men are front and center in, in a lot of the uh, literature and a lot of the historical study. But you have the, the just, you know, essay upon essay uh, about all these fascinating details about women, uh, so, you know, some of whom, uh, you know, are, are not all that familiar. Uh, others like Cleopatra are familiar, but the story about her and, and Antony and their little bets, I mean, that, that was one that, that not maybe not a lot of people are familiar with. And I thought that was just, it was so interesting to get a, a look at women that, that was, that, that, that definitely demonstrated that they were hardly, you know, that, that, you know, you had, you know, your warrior women and, and, and tough women uh, uh, back in those days as well. Correct. And I, um, I was really excited when I was writing the, um, the first essay in that section on formidable women, Beauty Secrets of the Ancient Amazons, trying to identify this, uh, this uh, lotion that they used to, to warm themselves after plunging into the Don River up in Ukraine. And as I was working on that essay, uh, I found out that uh, the Nobel Prize in Medicine was given to a couple of scientists uh, who discovered how that uh, special lotion worked. It was it was made from uh, primitive cabbage, which uh, so it worked almost the same as uh, as uh, concoctions uh, containing uh, red chili peppers. They they actually figured out how this um, creates a sensation of warmth in the body. So I was able to cite Nobel Prize winners in uh, identifying that 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 uh, special beauty secret of the ancient Amazons. And then, um, as you mentioned, uh, uh, there are some little known stories in there, like who would expect Plato to talk about Amazons and Scythian warrior women and uh, and to advise the Greeks to be more like Amazons and, and include women in, in their armies. That was really amazing. But my favorite... Uh, Maybe like you is is Cleopatra and Anthony go fishing. <laughs> I I love that story. Um, uh, people know about Anthony and Cleopatra, but they don't realize that there are some really funny stories attached to that. It comes from Plutarch, um, and so this would happen. Bef- uh, these these stories, of course, happen before they uh, lost the battle at Actium and. Uh, um, Augustus then becomes the the first emperor, and uh, Cleopatra and Antony commit suicide. This is a, a humorous tale that's in Plutarch to, to just show their relationship. It was just really funny. Uh, you mentioned that uh, many people have heard that Cleopatra made a bet with Antony that she could invite him to the world's most expensive banquet, and he took up the bet, and uh, he arrived, and all she did was remove one of her dazzling pearl earrings, crush it, and then dissolved it in a goblet of vinegar, <laughs> and then <laughs> offered him the vinegar. Um, and then, According to Pliny the Elder, the pearls in her earrings were uh, – probably came from India or someplace in the East. And Pliny guessed that they were worth 60 million sesterci. And that, uh, I believe, is the equivalent of $30 million today. So uh, he was pretty impressed. But my favorite story is when the day she took him fishing on the Nile on her barge. And they were accompanied by a bunch of other small fishing boats. And everyone was pulling up uh, Nile perch on their hooks. And everyone was pretty lucky except Antony. He was skunked. Uh, he didn't catch a single fish. So 
the next day when they went fishing, he had devised a very clever plan. He paid several of the fishermen in the smaller boats to dive underwater and place their own freshly caught perch on his hook. And over the next hour or so, Antony's pulling up fish after fish. And the Egyptians on, on Cleopatra's barge are marveling at this heap of fish on the deck. And, and you know, they're just perplexed how fast he's catching them all. But Cleopatra figured out uh, what was going on. And she pretended she, she was uh, amazed. But she figured out uh, what she could, uh, how she could get even. And the next day, uh, as soon as Antony let down his fishing line, Cleopatra sent some of her servants uh, to dive under the water and attach a very large, very dead salt fish from the Black Sea onto Antony's hook. And he he landed this huge fish, and everyone stared at it. And the guffaws, I mean, even Plutarch says that everyone was hooting and laughing. And Cleopatra pointed out that uh, she, he should just uh, leave fishing to us and, and your, your game is conquering kingdoms. Um, so I tried to figure out what was the what was this fish that, that she put on, on his hook. It was a large dead fish from the Black Sea. And it was that was a big import into Egypt from the Black Sea fisheries. Vast... Uh, um, uh, tons of salted fish came uh, came from the Black Sea, and they were probably it was probably an enormous tuna, bluefin tuna, um, and they were salted in, uh, in order to preserve them, and then um, enjoyed in Egypt. But it would have been very obvious that it was a dead salt fish from the Black <laughs> Sea. So I can imagine that uh, um, Antony was uh, put in his place, and Cleopatra. <laughs> Got the last laugh, <laughs> and, and yet there's there's aspect to that story that it, it, the way you presented it was was when she t- tells him uh, that he should stick to conquest and and leave the fishing to the Egyptians about how it, it, as she's gently letting down the male ego there, there's something so so true about that that I was thinking and, and that, that gets to one of the things I really enjoyed about your book which is that you're, you're not just you know throwing out the, these these little nuggets because they're curiosities but you're using them to to uh, to kind of get at these larger truths you're using them to to better understand these times. And and, and not just the, the in terms of the ancient world, but as you go on in that section of the book, you, you talk about how people in the early modern world were engaging with uh, those times and how in your final chapter, you even talk about a, a dinner party in Soho, 1993. And, 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 it, 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 and you're showing just it, so it's, it, you're, you're talking about not just these, about these curiosities as being part of the dead past, but how we've grappled with them in the centuries since. And I thought that was really a, a fascinating approach to take as well. Yes, I'm. I'm absolutely fascinated in uh, what today is called classical reception. That uh, the way uh, some of these stories not only are, are received and retold now, but even unconsciously uh, are perpetuated. Uh, just the the um, the re- weird relationship between wine goblets and women's breasts goes all the way back to uh, Helen of Troy, and and then as you say. It, it, I found uh, such similar stories uh, in uh, an an art gallery opening in in New York uh, in in 1993, and it goes on today. So um, that that essay, I think, is uh, one of the best of the ancient ancient and modern uh, uh, trajectories of of ancient themes and and motifs. Uh, It's a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Um, The same thing with the ghost ships in the next section, the 
uh, a section on curious history and science. I I have a um, chapters on mirages and wind and um, the first the first anti-vaxxers. Um, but uh, I think Ghost Ships is is uh, an interesting essay, the one that begins that section, because um, ghost ships are, before the age of steam and uh, during, uh, during the whole era of uh, sailing ships, um, the, the Atlantic Ocean was just populated by all these abandoned ships. That would just keep floating because they're 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 so seaworthy, and so their sailors would pass them over and over again, year after year, as they sailed across or around the Atlantic. You would see these same uh, ghostly ships, uh, abandoned ships. They stay afloat, and even even some with you know ragged sails still up, but um, and then they they just slowly degenerate. Uh, one of them, I think, was sighted 46 times by other ships. Um, and it's really interesting to me that Benjamin Franklin figured out, he tracked these and figured out uh, that there must be some sort of uh, wide, uh, huge current in the Atlantic. So it was sort of like the beginning of uh, understanding about the Gulf Stream, which which is sort of captures these ghost ships and and then sends them around and around in a great circle in the Atlantic, this great current. Um, so then I wondered, is there is there some sort of is there any sort of ancient uh, version of, uh, of of such a thing? And I, I found out that the the first um, the first story of a phantom ship uh, was documented by the Roman historian Suetonius. Um, in about AD 68, I think it was. And it happened in Alexandria, Egypt. A boat full of weapons sailed into the harbor at the, at the, um, at the mouth uh, of a river in, in Spain. And the weapons were from Alexandria, but the ship somehow arrived uh, on the shore in Spain at a harbor. But there were no no one, no sailors, no passengers, no one on board. And so this was a ghostly ship uh, that happened uh, during the reign of, of Nero. And it, it was taken as a, a very bad omen for, for Nero <laughs> that a ghostly <laughs> ship would have would arrive just when um, uh, people were planning to assassinate Nero. So um, we have no idea how the ship came to be abandoned probably uh, during a storm. And then wind and currents carried the vessel uh, from Alexandria through across the Mediterranean all the way to Spain. So um, there we have uh, some continuity, but um, it's not conscious. I, I have to say my, my, my favorite chapter in that section was uh, the one on poison honey. Because it, it, until I read that, I was not even aware there was such a thing. And it was not just your description of poison honey, but how you went and 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 traced. The, it's like that, and this is something that that, that specialists you know, know something about. But how you trace it, how you explain how it came to be, and and how it reoccurs periodically throughout history. And yet, it, it, it's something that 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 is it, it still comes up and surprises people, which is why you still have these stories of people who who come who who uh, consume this honey and then you know and 
go into the stupor. Yes, that's right. Uh, the first recorded incident uh, is in in, uh, in Xenophon's uh, story of of bringing the um, the Greek soldiers back from Persia after fighting as mercenaries. Uh, for Cyrus, there, uh, Cyrus is uh, defeated, and so now Xenophon has to bring these ten thousand Greek soldiers back to Greece somehow. And uh, he he wrote his memoirs of that uh, of that great march uh, in the fifth century BC, and uh, and he, he was appalled as a, as a general leading his his men. Um, they're eating this harmless, uh, sticky sweets treat that they find uh, on the shores of the Black Sea. They're almost home. And all of a sudden, they're lying around completely decimated as if they're as if they're dead. And Xenophon was appalled because he knew how vulnerable they were now. Luckily, nothing happened to them. But uh, later, when Rome Rome, uh, the Rome's uh, Roman uh, commander Pompey the Great was fighting Mithridates the uh, sixth of Pontus. Some of Mithridates' allies deliberately set out hives of wild honey that they knew to be poisonous along Pompey's route. And the Roman legionnaires, of course, I mean, there's no other sweet in in antiquity. Honey is a big treat. So the the Roman soldiers feasted on this uh, on this unexpected uh, pleasure of honey, and they fell ill. And then Mithridates' allies came and slaughtered uh, Pompey's soldiers. I think half of his half of his soldiers were slaughtered. So uh, uh, it can be really dangerous, and it keeps coming up. I mean, it came up again uh, in Russian history, I guess. Uh, uh, Queen Olga used uh, used uh, poison honey as well, and we have stories of poison honey during the Civil War in the United States. So it just keeps coming up, um, and it's so unexpected for people because honey seems like such a healthy, uh, healthy, health-giving, uh, harmless thing. And then to find out that it can be naturally toxic without harming the bees who make it, uh, it's, it's really quite startling for most people. Mm-hmm. It, now, in your final section, you uh, have, uh, it, it's, you talk about a, a variety of different aspects of, of, of connections that people make. See, and, and there, there's, there's this real sense of adventure in this section because you, you, you talk, you go from tourism to talking about mountain climbing to talk about in, in a different kind of adventure, you know, people uh, getting tattoos uh, that enhance the title travelers, tattoos and pirates. I was wondering if you could uh, identify what, what, if there was a particular chapter or two in there that you uh, thought were, uh, was, was especially uh, noteworthy or, or, or fun to, or fun to research and write about. Well, it was really in- interesting after working on ancient tattoos in the uh, ancient uh, Greek and Roman world, then to delve into tattooing in ancient China. Uh, and uh, I found that really fascinating because it turns out that uh, tattoos uh, were um, they have the same sort of ambivalence. People are think of them as uh, associating them with criminals and rebels and people like that. And then it turns out that uh, actually certain nationalist heroes of China had very uh, famous tattoos. And I found a picture of, of, of one of the heroes of, of ancient China, um, medieval China, getting a tattoo that was uh, directed uh, by his own mother, uh, what would be tattooed on his back. And it was a very nationalistic, patriotic uh, um, tattoo. Um, So that one, that one was really a lot of fun 
to write. And uh, I also liked the story about King Midas because everyone knows of, of his golden touch. And mm-hmm. uh, it's almost become a fairy tale uh, that, uh, that everything he touched, even his food and then even his own daughter, turned to gold uh, because he had made this rash uh, wish uh that that he could ha- that he could have this uh golden touch but very few people know that he uh died because he drank bull's blood and so i i really delved into <laughs> why why <laughs> um why are there so many stories of people dying because they drank bull's blood and so i won't i won't give the spoiler for that one but i i did find out that there's a scientific explanation for it but i got to say my favorite i I, le- I left it for the last uh it's the perfumes of power and the scent of of alpha leaders <laughs> And uh, I, I, I was just so amazed to find out that that Putin had issued a perfume uh, in, in in 2015, I think it was, and then that Donald Trump marketed his own celebrity scents. I, I think very p- few people realize that that, that he uh, marketed a, a perfume in 2004 called Trump. Um, and, of co- and then his next one, he, he launched yet another one uh, called Success in, uh, I think it was t- uh, 2011 or 2012. Um, and, and so you, you could uh, spray this uh, Trump-inspired, uh, in fact, uh, issue marketed by Donald Trump called Success. Uh, and then uh, he, he went with a third fragrance, Empire. <laughs> which was launched during his campaign in 2015 and sold for about $8 an ounce. And uh, I found out who were the master perfumers who created these perfumes. Uh, and then I found a, a website that tracks the, the popular interest in perfumes and how they do in the marketplace. And uh, Empire by Trump, I think it peaked uh, in about 2017 and then plunged uh, a few months later and never recovered um so uh from trump to uh empire uh and then to uh, success uh these perfumes you can actually track how they do in the marketplace so um i think a similar fate was met by uh putin's fragrance fragrance the um interest spiked and then plunged and then it flared up again uh while trump was president and but it has flatlined ever since so um i wondered whether this uh these perfumes of alpha males could be traced to antiquity and they could i found there there's a well there's a modern perfume that's that's named after alexander the great's horse um but what's really interesting is that uh um cleopatra was very interested in making perfume she had a large perfume making laboratory uh in the dead sea uh, near the dead sea and she wrote a, a recipe book for perfumes um so uh we don't know if julius caesar and mark antony used those perfumes but she did we know she she even perfumed the sails of her ships were drenched in perfumes so um so perfumes associated with uh, great leaders uh uh, goes all the way back to at least the uh, Roman times. 
there, there's so much fascinating detail in that chapter, but I think the thing that fascinated me most as I thought about it was the fact that we know as much about, or or, or at least that the people back then theorized about how people smell. It's like nowadays, we're such a visual culture. We, we, we see leaders and we don't think about how they smell. And yet, as you put it, like Plutarch writes about how Alexander the Great smells. And, and you, wouldn't, you, you would think, you know, setting aside whether or not actually, Alexander actually smelled like that, the, the fact that he felt it necessary to write about that spoke to how important that was for them back then. That's right. It's part of is a part of their power and their attraction, uh, apparently. Um, that uh, that Plutarch would even he must have heard it so often from people he was interviewing or uh, talking with. Um, they must have talked about this, and uh, so that that was really fascinating uh, to me. Uh, I don't know whether Trump and Putin actually use their own perfumes, <laughs> uh, but uh, um, I think uh, someone someone reported that Putin actually prefers a, a, a cologne that is called Czar. <laughs> that is um, said to said to smell seductive and exhilarating with notes of leather and and juniper, um, and that uh, that perfume was uh, I think uh, hit the market during the collapse of the Soviet Union, and I found some report uh, where a Russian uh, perfume uh, specialist uh, described Tsar Cologne, the favorite of Putin, uh, as the scent of responsibility, whatever that means. Well, we've taken. Uh, we, we're really glad you're taking some time uh, out of your schedule to speak with us. But before we go, uh, could you tell us what you're working on now? I am working on a book about uh, geomythology for Princeton University Press. So that's my next project, and I'm very eager to get started on it. Uh, could you explain what exactly uh, geomythology is? Geomythology is uh, the study of. It's a. It's an emerging field. It's a new field um, in which uh, we study uh, mythology and legends about natural disasters, earthquakes, uh, volcanoes, floods, uh, tsunamis, uh, to see whether there are any. Uh, um, nuggets of historical and uh, um, scientific uh, realities in them. Uh, It's of great help to not only historians, but also scientists, uh, especially if we can find myths that that are datable about natural disasters um, that go back even uh, millennia. Um, I think some of the oldest myths about natural disasters are at least... uh, 7,000 years old. So it, it's uh, quite amazing to have these records of of events uh, in Earth's history. It sounds like it's going to be a fascinating book, and I hope that when you complete it and it's published, we can have you back on the podcast. I'd love to come back. Thank you. You're welcome. Adrian Mayer, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you.